0: welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. This is your host, Edward Russell, and I'm joined by my colleague, Jay Shabbat. And this week, we discuss SAS's bankruptcy and the new Star Alliance Deutsche Bahn Intermodal Partnership. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Hello, Ned, how are you? Doing well, doing well. It's a it's a, another wild world in the in <laughs> in the universe of aviation. You know, coming off of the July 4th holiday, we uh, in the US, we had the another airline bankruptcy. Uh this time out of Europe, SAS Scandinavian Airlines filed for Chapter 11 early on July 5th.
1: Yeah, SAS uh based based in Sweden and uh they uh did file um right after their pilots said they would go out on strike, which adds another uh, layer of misery to Europe's air travel, uh, woes this summer. Absolutely. Yeah. we'll, we'll put that aside, aside for a minute and just talk about SAS. So yeah, SAS, they actually, um, when they, when they reported their earnings back in May, I think it was, uh, they, um, they actually s- even suggested that they might have to take this course to, uh, to enact the restructuring steps that they needed that they may, may in fact have to file for bankruptcy. So it wasn't a huge surprise um, that they took this step. Now it's interesting that SAS has been for, you know, I always like to, the image I have of SAS um, is, you know, someone in a, in, a, in a boat and the boat is taking on water and to prevent, uh, to, to just, just prevent um, the boat from sinking. The, the person in the boat is just constantly having to shovel out water in a bucket. And it's almost it, it, every time you look at SAS, no matter you know, what year it is or what quarter it is, they're always just shoveling out. They're trying to cut costs, cut costs, cut costs, always just trying to stay, stay above water, keep from sinking. And unfortunately, this time, they were unable to do it without having to resort to a court restructuring. And uh, yeah, moving forward, we'll see how successful that is. It may not be as easy as it was for perhaps some other airlines earlier in the pandemic because when you're trying to cut costs in bankruptcy, you have a lot of advantages. The big one being that you can basically break contracts with your labor unions, your bondholders, your suppliers. But in this case, a lot of markets are tight right now. So the the aircraft market, for example, One of the things that SAS is going to try hard to do is reduce the cost of their lease contracts or aircraft lease contracts. That's going to be harder when aircraft lessors can easily put those planes somewhere else because the market is relatively tight right now.
0: Absolutely. And and you bring up a very good point. So I was reading SAS's uh, day one motions that are filed with the court. And while they mentioned the strike as the sort of precipitating uh, event that, that forced them to file for Chapter 11 they mentioned uh aircraft lessors and the inability to get concessions from them as the uh quote unquote most notable reason for their chapter 11 filing so you know aircraft lessors are directly in the crosshairs of of SAS, for, of SAS as they go through this process
1: yeah absolutely ned. And you ned uh, when you were we told me that earlier in the week when we were talking um that fact about their you know how SAS was stressing the need to to get those aircraft uh lease concessions and uh yeah, I went, went back and, and looked at some of the things they said during their, their last earnings call. And uh, yeah, they, they did mention that um, labor, now they, they have this, this uh, restructuring program that they developed, uh, whatever it was, a couple months ago.
0: SAS Forward.
1: SAS Forward, exactly. And they said that uh, labor is actually only expected to contribute about 20% of, of the cost cuts they need in that plan. Um, so a lot of it's going to come from other sources. They, one of them is is like sort of in a generic category called like business processes or whatever, uh, business right. model. So you know, I suspect that, that all nature of right, right. So I, I suspect that has something to do with trying to operate a little bit more like a low cost carrier or whatever. You know, maybe more flexible. Some of that may have overlap with with labor issues. You know, more flexible work rules, whatever to for, to to shape the scheduling more dynamically, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of it is going to be uh, coming down to getting the aircraft uh, costs down through renegotiation uh, with lessors. Absolutely.
0: Now it is going to be interesting how they do it because, like you said, the demand is very high for a lot of the aircraft in in SES's fleet, and they have about a hundred aircraft uh, at the time of their filing. You you brought up the uh, the call they had in May, their earnings call, and one of the things that I remember jumped out to me during that call. Was uh, CEO Enko Vanderwerf repeatedly said they wanted to simplify their fleet, and uh, he pointed to wide bodies as a potential area for that. And, and so SAS has a fleet of A330s and A350s. So a logical step could be for them to to drop the A330s because, I mean, we all know <laughs> they're also pushing for for you know efficiencies and carbon savings. So it would make more sense to keep the th- the 350s and the 330s, but. You know, I've been checking the filings so far this week, and we're recording on July seventh, and they haven't actually rejected any leases yet. So those could still be coming. The other point you brought up, Jay, was low, you know, operating more like a low-cost carrier. You know, in the filing, they they did mention that that is one of the competitive pressures they faced is incursion by low-cost carriers into their home markets, and and we have seen this during the pandemic. You know, Norwegian Air was one of the first to restructure. Uh, you know, they sort of started before the pandemic, but completed. Uh, in early 2021, and they've come out with a much lower cost structure. They shed a lot of their debt, broke a lot of their leases. Uh, as you know, speaking of lessors, and they are, you know, their narrow body fleet is back to about where it was before their restructuring. So, they're a formidable competitor operating out of all of SAS's major bases, except maybe Copenhagen. I'm not entirely sure. But then we've also got startups Flyer in Norway, Norse Atlantic is doing long haul out of Oslo. Eurowings and Ryanair set up bases at Sweden Arlanda during the during the pandemic, and then Finnair started flying long haul out of Stockholm. So uh, it's you know there's a lot of competition and opera, you know especially low costs, and and that's going to be a de- very serious concern for SAS going forward, Chapter Eleven or
1: not? Right, and that that's one of uh, that's one of the big problems that SAS has always had is that they're so short haul heavy. They've never really been able to de- develop a long haul market, like a very large long long haul market. They've got some, you know, roots to the U.S. They had a decent Asian franchise before, you know, Russian airspace was closed and COVID right. decimated the Asian markets. So they, so that's kind of gone now too. But um, one of the big problems, I mean, it's it's structurally SAS is. They have, a, they have a real issue here. So, so picture a, a, a company like Lufthansa. Lufthansa is so large that they can get away with operating multiple hubs, whether it's you know, Frankfurt, Munich, and, and Zurich, whatever, uh, Vienna. You, a carrier like SAS, um, they can't really do that, but they don't really have a choice. So they have you know, Copenhagen, Oslo, Stockholm these are all strong markets in their own way. I mean, they're, you know, they have plenty of business traffic. There's, you know, there's, they're, they're relatively wealthy markets, um, But they're, but they're just, they don't have the scale to support a very, you know, robust intercontinental network, like say a Frankfurt would or, or even a Munich or even, you know, certainly like a London or a Paris. So right. that's, it's very difficult. And, you know, you don't, in general, you don't want to, unless you're a giant airline with, you know, just like the U.S. airlines can do this because they're so large, but you generally don't want to split all your assets across multiple hubs. You don't kind of get those economies of scale and scope that you that you would. So you're having a relatively small airline like SAS, which, as you said, only whatever, 100 airplanes, and you're splitting that across three medium-sized hubs. And ultimately, the economics become very, very difficult. And that's sort of fundamentally, I mean, you can argue that's fundamentally, you know, one of the biggest problems that SAS has always had, you know, as, 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 as an airline, trying to become sustainably, pro- sustainably profitable, uh, very difficult to do, but Absolutely. it's also very politically hard to, you know, they, they're owned by, the, the, I don't think the Norwegian government is involved anymore, but the, you know, the Danish government still owns a big stake and the Swedish government owns a big stake. So it's, it's, it's difficult to, you know, there's a lot of politics and trying to stress one hub versus the other. Um, so this is this is not going to be an easy restructuring uh, project here.
0: Absolutely, and you make a good point. When when in the the first day filings, I was surprised to see that that SAS has less than fifty percent share in all three of its major hubs—Oslo, uh, Stockholm, and Copenhagen—which is um, not good for an airline that's uh, trying to to, like you said, be sustainably profitable. And I, I think immediately of Finnair, who also flies in the Nordic countries but has been a, a successful airline because they can focus on one hub, Helsinki and, and do it well. And they've been able to do well. Now they have their challenges like Russian airspace, but it's um, you know, it's it, they're in a very different position than, than SAS right now. SAS is right now. Well, Jay, yes. let's take a quick break now and, and come back in a minute. All right. That's good. And we're back. Jay, it's uh, you know as we've been we've been talking about SAS's bankruptcy and some of the changes that are coming to to Northern Europe, you know there is another there was another deal this week out of Europe that could change some travel patterns and that was Star Alliance announced that Deutsche Bahn, the German railway operator, is their first intermodal partner uh, that will be joining the alliance and and this is a big deal because Star Alliance is fundamentally an airline a, a grouping of airlines partnership you know twenty six airlines around the world. And they're adding a rail partner, which is a first, uh, just hasn't been done before.
1: Yeah, there hasn't been much uh, intermodal uh, cooperation um, involving airlines over the years. You've always, you know, periodically have seen, you know, deals here and there. This airline has a co share with, with this railway, but uh, we'll see if this, you know, amounts to anything more meaningful.
0: Absolutely, you know, and they're building on arguably the most successful uh, air rail partnership, as as I, I like to call them, uh, and that is between Lufthansa and Deutsche Bahn, and that's that's a program that's been going on since the the mid '80s. And I did some research a few months ago. Uh, you know, they Lufthansa first partnered with Deutsche Bahn to replace flights between Frankfurt and Dusseldorf when they needed more uh, slots in Frankfurt to, to operate more flights. Of course, now the 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 goal is more to give passengers options and, of course, to reduce carbon emissions, which is uh, definitely a focus for a lot of airlines. But, you know, as I was digging into this new Star Alliance partnership, it really uh, came to the fore that, you know, while travelers will be able to get their Star Alliance elite benefits, you know, earn miles on, on Deutsche Bahn trains that have flight numbers um, – Star isn't actually, you know, they're not really doing anything that's going to push travelers onto trains or potentially replace flights. And and I, I asked them directly about that. And and their response was, you know, they're not in the business to make the decision for passengers whether they want to fly or take the train. Um, you know, this is just gives them another option. And I mean, frankly, I think that that sort of misses the boat a bit. If uh, if the goal is to reduce carbon emissions, you know, they need to... to You know, give people a bit of a nudge to get onto those trains, not just give them elite benefits. But you know, that's my opinion on this.
1: Yeah, interesting. And I know, like in the past, it's always been sort of a niche thing. We'll see if yeah, anything, you know, more amounts. It's the 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 point you make about you know some of the environmental pressures, carbon emissions. I know there's some EU governments that are you know emphasizing rail over air. So maybe, uh, you know that that sort of push will will give some momentum behind these intermodal partnerships. I don't know. Um, And and maybe just the fact that, you know, right now we'll see how long it lasts, but with with airports being so stressed operationally, you know, maybe more people will feel more comfortable like connecting on a train. I'm curious to, and I want to ask you that if you've ever done any kind of, I I remember one time you you, you brought up uh, the um, Frankfurt and Dusseldorf. I, w- I once did that. I was I was actually go. It was about ten years ago. I was actually I actually fly to Africa, and I was I was living in Florida, and it just so happened my hometown airport, Fort Myers, had a nonstop flight to Dusseldorf, but wow, I, my, <laughs> no, that's yes, right. yes yes it was like the only nonstop to Europe is a r- weird thing, and uh, the the flight I needed to ever goes from Frankfurt. So so I did. I flew nonstop to, to Dusseldorf. I took the train over to Frankfurt. It worked it worked generally well. I mean I wouldn't have done it if. You know the it was just kind of a unique circumstance with that was those flights, but have you ever done anything like that
0: um you know uh i i yeah no i so i did a a transfer um a trip earlier this year where I got the opportunity to try the the transfer um on the train uh, with an air france partnership and it wasn't as smooth as I would have hoped for sure um, you know, signage was a bit lacking. There was uh, my, my biggest, I think my biggest pet peeve was the fact that you come out of arrivals after you get off your flight. And the thing is, you don't immediately, it doesn't tell you to go to a train station or something. So it wasn't as intuitive as I, as I expected, but it's uh, it's definitely an opportunity, especially at these European airports where the, the train station is right in the terminal. So, you know, SNCF has a station right there at Paris Charles de Gaulle and, and uh, Deutsche Bahn has a station at... Frankfurt. Um, but there are definitely some hurdles. And and you made a good point about being, you know, these are niche. I looked at in 2019, which was the highest number year, Luf- the year when Lufthansa had the most passengers traveling on joint train plane itineraries. And, you know, even then it was 0.8% of their annual passenger numbers. I mean, so this is less than 1%. It's tiny. It's a tiny fraction.
1: Yeah, it's 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 pretty niche. And And um, I know that in the on the U.S. side, there's been some movement in uh, trying to do these uh, air bus type uh, type deals where, you know, you fly into Minneapolis or whatever, and they put you on a bus and to go. So, but but again, I mean, I think that's that's all pretty niche. Uh, Yeah, it's it's not. And the bus deals
0: is more more about adding new markets than replacing flights in a lot of places. Yeah, good point. So it's um. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. So it's, it's, yeah, I'm very curious how the Star Alliance partnership plays out and whether it will amount to, you know, serious carbon emission savings, or if it's just sort of another, you know, like they like to say, greenwashing, you know, another sort of marketing ploy to, you know, it's it looks good, but not many people really use it.
1: Right. Or it may just be, you know, one uh, more way in which the Star Alliance can reward its customers you know okay we're we're a better alliance than one world and star because or then sky Sky team because we offer this benefit and And there's there's
0: something to be said for that i mean Uh just being able to offer that benefit is probably going to encourage a few more people to take the train and fundamentally that is good uh you know especially if we're looking at reducing carbon emissions but unless we're we're actually replacing flights with trains is going to be, you know, minimal carbon savings. Though it is good if we're pushing a couple more people to take the train for sure. Yeah. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining today. And thank you all for listening to the Align Weekly Lounge podcast. If you want to reach Jay, you can uh, email him at js at skiff.com. If you want to reach myself, Edward, please email er at skiff.com. Thank you again for joining us and have a good week. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.